All right, we'll we'll get started. Um, feel free to continue to get some of your snacks and drinks there. That's fine. And I know some of you will need to leave um, a little bit early to pick up your children from uh, CCD as well. So obviously, feel free to get up when you need to get up. That's not a problem. Um, we'll see what I can try to cut out of the notes and, and make sure we finish uh, on time, if not before, so that you get out on time. And if you have any um, questions, uh, maybe Mark can take any of those or answer those that you might have. So part two, we'll try to get into the Eucharist more a little bit here, help us understand a few things from that, at least two of the components that are um, really essential um, from my perspective and things that I really enjoy uh, to talk about. And so the Eucharist is a source and summit of our faith. And to help us better understand that, uh, for me uh, to come to that conclusion, uh, was through some study that I unexpectedly started doing uh, while I was a evangelical Protestant. And so these first three um, quotes are actually from Protestant um, sources. And the only reason I put them there is because they were some of the things that started getting me to think a little more deeply about the ancient faith and what worship really is. And in particular, um, maybe there's a little more to this uh, Eucharist thing. Than I, than I thought, even though I was raised uh, Catholic. And so Poine says, the early church worship centered on communion and only baptized Christians were admitted to its celebration. Well, where I went to church, that wasn't true. Uh, what worship centered on was, was preaching. And there was 60 minutes of preaching. There was music before and after um, that. And then we had communion, you know, maybe once a quarter you know, sometimes monthly. Um, and that communion is not the same as uh, the Catholic Church. It's radically different. They don't even believe anything close to what uh, the Catholic Church teaches. And so when I read something like this, that worship centered on communion, that that's a shift. Like, But this was coming from a Protestant historian. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's something there to that. And then even stronger, point B, again, from another Protestant scholar, the expression, the Lord's table, is used to refer to the altar in the Old Testament. Paul's, ex Paul's reference to the Lord's Supper as a participation in the Lord's table suggests that the celebration of Christ's sacrifice now serves as a centerpiece for Christian worship, as did the altar, the Lord's table in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel went to worship by bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. Again, it's, it's bringing the center back to the altar and to communion as the center point of worship. And these things are important for us to know that we actually have the ancient faith. We have the faith passed on from Christ to the apostles to us today in the Catholic Church. That's why one of the main things uh, that helped distinguish us as the one true church. Point C. This was also enlightening. Christians believe that communion joined them not only among themselves, and with Jesus Christ, but also with their ancestors in the faith. Communion joined the living and the dead in a single body, and not just in a, a spiritual, um, mystical kind of way. There's, there's a reality to that, and we'll see um, as we look at the Mass, and that actually in the Mass, we actually go to heaven, and we'll understand a little bit more about how that can be. And so there were some things here that really got me pondering more about uh, worship, how it's centered on communion, how it's centered on the altar, and that there's more in communion between just me and God. It's about the people, all of us coming together and becoming one. 
and then beautifully um, in a way that, that helps us understand is in Hebrews chapter 12, it, it talks about how we join angels and saints uh, at Mount Zion in heaven. And so we'll, we'll uh, ponder some of that as we go through this a little bit more. But what does the Bible say? Of course, that was an interest of mine. And here's what it has to say. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In those few verses, there's 15 times that talked about one. And obviously I bolded and italicized those. There's more going on in communion than just me and, and God. This is about a oneness uh, that we have in the Eucharist and in communion. Point F, and this is what the, the ancient church fathers had to start saying about this, and this certainly uh, got my attention, which says, Be careful then to observe a single Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup of his blood that makes us one, and one altar, just as there is one bishop along with the presbytery and the deacons. And so not only is he talking about the Eucharist and it making us one and an altar, but he's referencing a bishop, he's referencing priests and deacons. This also uh, was contrary to the church I was in. We didn't have a bishop. We didn't have priests. We did have deacons and we had pastors, but we did not have uh, the Eucharist. We did not have this unity of this nature. And so St. Ignatius, he's a contemporary of St. Paul and um, and and apostles. So he, he actually was in their lifetime. This isn't just a guy way down the line. I mean, this was uh, someone that was a disciple of people like Peter and Paul. And so it's uh, not insignificant. And even Protestant historians would acknowledge that St. Ignatius knew apostles. And so when you have them telling us things of this nature, it really uh, helps affirm the Catholic faith and the Catholic teaching. And letter G, Break one loaf, which is the medicine of immortality, and the antidote, which wars off death, but yields continuous life and union with Jesus Christ. Notice how the Eucharist is this life-giving thing. It's not just something that you uh, you do and, and think thoughts of, you know, back when, when, when Jesus died on the cross and how nice that is. But there's a, there's a reality of life that happens. And so when you think of John chapter 15, Jesus talks about him being the vine and we're the branches and that we're to abide in him. We have to remain in him in order that we might have life. The Eucharist is, is speaks to all those things where we participate in that. So point five, the Eucharist memorial sacrifice. In scripture, a memorial does not merely recall a past event. It was relived and made present. Therefore, when Jesus said, do this in memory of me, he was commanding the apostles to make present as a biblical memorial, the sacrificial offering of his body and blood at the Last Supper, 
Biblically speaking, remember means much more than merely pondering the past. A liturgical memorial brings the past and the present together, making the past mystically present for the current generation. Priests perpetuate this memorial through the continual celebration of the Eucharist, where Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is present. Christ's mandate to continue this liturgical action is linked with his institution of the new covenant priesthood. In order to leave them a pledge of his love, in order never to depart from his own and to make them shares in his Passover, he instituted the Eucharist as the memorial of his death and resurrection and commanded his apostles to celebrate it until his return. Thereby, he constituted them as priests of the New Testament. So you'll get Protestants that will balk at this idea of priests, that this idea of um, representation. You may be accused of a few different things. One, you could hear that, oh, you just re-crucify Christ all over again, over and over and over at the Mass, you re-crucify him. That could be an accusation. Um, the other could be you're a cannibal, right? Because you uh, partake of this body and blood type of thing. And there's um, people out there that will actually say those things. I was actually um, around people that would think that way and, and believe those kinds of things. But notice scriptures clearly lays these things out for us that that's not the case, that there's a mystery involved in the representation um, of Christ. It's not crucifying him all over again. Point B. The Passover itself was a sacrifice. For Jesus to speak about his body and blood in the context of Passover would bring to mind the Passover lamb. When Jesus says his body will be given up for you, the term used in Luke's gospel for given up is significant, for it is employed elsewhere in the New Testament in association with sacrifice. When Jesus speaks of his blood, which will be poured out, for the forgiveness of sins, he alludes to the atoning sacrifices in the temple, which involve blood being poured out over the altar for the purpose of bringing forgiveness. Significantly, Jesus speaks of his body, speaks of his blood in the new and eternal covenant. These words echo what Moses said in the sacrificial ceremony at Mount Sinai that sealed God's covenant union with Israel and his chosen people. With all these sacrificial themes, the Passover ritual, a body being given up, blood being poured out, and the blood of the covenant. Jesus clearly has some type of sacrifice in mind here. Yet instead of speaking about the Passover lamb being sacrificed, which is what one might expect in the context of a Passover meal, he talks about his own body and blood being offered up and poured out in sacrifice. His body, his blood is now the sacrificial blood of the covenant. Jesus surprisingly identifies himself with the sacrificial lamb normally offered for Passover. As such, Jesus' action at the Last Supper mysteriously anticipates his sacrifice on Calvary, on the cross. Point C. In the sense of sacred scripture, the memorial is not merely the recollection of past events, but the proclamation of mighty works wrought by God for men. In the liturgical celebration of these events, they become in a certain way present and real. This is how Israel understands its liberation from Egypt every time Passover is celebrated. The Exodus events are made present in the memory of believers so that they may conform their lives to them. In other words, when the Israelites celebrated Passover, they didn't just think back 
on what happened with grandpa and great grandpa way back then. It was relived. It was made present at the time that they celebrate it every year. That's the background to the Eucharist. That's how it's represented to us, how we enter into the mystery of this, that his sacrifice is not time bound in that sense. Point E, the liturgy of the church, in the liturgy of the church, it is principally his own paschal mystery that Christ signifies and makes present. During his earthly life, Jesus announces his paschal mystery in his teaching and anticipates and anticipated it by his actions. When his hour comes, he lives out the unique event of history, which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father once for all. This paschal mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All other historical events happen once and then pass away, swallowed up in the past. The paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past because his death, because by his death he destroyed death and all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all time while being made present in them all. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything toward life. Those are the kinds of things that help us really understand what's happening at the Mass, how this representation can happen, how the Passover helps us understand the Eucharist and the Last Supper, that Jesus at the Last Supper is that Passover lamb there. That's why he speaks the way he does. There wasn't a lamb that they partook of and ate. What did they eat and drink? They ate and drank his body and blood there in advance before he was even crucified, risen, and ascended. So there's this is God we're talking about. This, he can do all kinds of things uh, miraculously, like feeding the 5,000 and other things of that nature. This is nothing uh, for him to pull these kinds of things off. It's just mind-blowing as we ponder it more. So point six, the Eucharist's real presence. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude other types of presence, as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself wholly and entirely present. In other words, the Eucharist is unique in a couple of different ways. One, it does say it's not like he's not present when you're at home praying or you're at mass or you're with your friends and family or even here tonight. He's present. But in the Eucharist, it's uniquely present because we have body, blood, soul, and divinity that we're receiving into ourselves and thus become one with him. And in that, he is uniquely and truly and really present to us and in us at that point. And there's no other way to have that kind of communion with him. And that's why this real presence in Eucharist understanding um, is key to help us. So point B, what does the Bible say? You know, this is where I would this is where I want to go. Okay, these Catholics are saying this, and the Catechism says that, but what about the Bible? 
right? Good Bible Christians are going to ask that. What does the Bible say? Well, here's what it says. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Now, what's interesting here, and what I started to try to break down a little bit, was understanding, well, what does that mean, to participate in the blood and the body? And so when you look at that word participate, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, so you'd want to go back and, and look at the Greek see what it has to say so we could better understand participation or participate, you know, versus an English dictionary that might help us. But we would get the general idea. It means koinonia in the Greek is the word. So we have fellowship, communion, sharing, close associations between, between persons. So something's happening here in a pretty profound a way that's intimate. There's an intimacy here in the participation in the blood. And then partake. Again, something interesting here, when you, when you look at the Greek word, partake, what, what was interesting to me was the same word is used in Hebrews 2.14 that refers to the incarnate Christ sharing in our humanity. So he shares in our humanity that we might participate in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He takes on human flesh. He partakes of us in order that we might partake of him, and we might become one with him in that. That's a lot more than a symbol going on. That's, that's a lot more than any Protestant church is going to teach you. Then when you look at John chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians 11, we have a lot more weight uh, on top of that. So 1 Corinthians 11, these people that did not partake in a worthy manner, some got sick and some died. So a mere symbol is killing people off and others are getting sick because they're not receiving the Eucharist properly. And so we're going to jump to that really quick right here in, in point seven as we finish out. It's very important that we're properly disposed. It's, it's deadly in that sense when we look at 1 Corinthians 11. They, they died. Some people died by mispartaking of the Eucharist inappropriately. So we start understanding we're approaching holy ground. We're coming to an inapproachable light. And, and that should start shifting the way we're thinking about coming to Mass. And, and I'll share a few of those things to get properly disposed. But point A under number seven. The Lord addresses an invitation to us, urging us to receive him in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. To respond to this invitation, we must prepare ourselves for so great and holy a moment. St. Paul urges us to examine our conscience. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Anyone conscious of a grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. To prepare for worthy reception of the sacrament, the faithful should observe the fast required in their church. Bodily demeanor, gestures, clothing ought to convey the respect, solemnity, and the joy of this moment when Christ becomes our guest. That's what the church is telling us. We should be 
prepared and ready and, and understand what we're about to encounter in order that we don't eat and drink judgment upon ourselves, that we might not become sick and die by not understanding what we're partaking of. And if you're not sure what you're partaking of, you, you know, you want to pause and get that kind of figured out. Talk with Father about some of those things. Make sure you understand. Notice gestures and clothing referenced. When you're going to go see the king, how are you looking to go do that? What about gestures in the church? Or is there anything you're doing that is distracting in any way, shape, or form? We ought not to distract at mass anyone on purpose, right? We shouldn't do things outside of the mass that aren't instructed to do as well. So we'd want to learn what some of those things are. We'd want to think about, yeah, how, how might I want to present myself to the king of kings, lord of lords, this holy God that I'm coming into the presence of. So we want to ponder some of those things and think about it. If you're going to meet the president or some important person that you really uh, appreciated and um, or you're going to go to an interview, I mean, what are you going to wear? What are you going to do? But then when you come to mass, is there a correlation at all? I mean, are you thinking about any of that? We need to ponder some of that. Okay, so a couple practical examples to close out here, maybe in the next couple minutes so we can end on time and early, is so for me, I read those things and studied those kinds of things, and, and you think lofty thoughts about this, but then practically, how do I start getting myself reoriented to approach mass differently to think about these truths? And so there's a couple things for me. One, architecture in the church already helps us do that. So we transfer into the narthex. When you come from the outside and in, you come into the narthex. And then you transfer into the nave, which is where all the pews are and where we sit. And then there's the sanctuary up where Father's at, at the altar. That whole thing is intentionally there to help us get ready for what is about ready to happen. So when we come into the narthex, we're literally transforming or transferring from this world into heaven. We should start thinking about going to heaven when we go to mass. That's what the church is calling us to start thinking about. And the narthex is that transition point where we go from the earth and we start entering in heaven. So within the narthex, you should start seeing things that kind of look like church, but kind of look like the world a little bit, and you're moving. And as soon as you come up to the doors to enter into the nave where we sit, once you start reaching out for that door, what I try to do regularly is think about the burning bush where Moses came to the burning bush and, and, and God called out to him and told him that you're on holy ground and to take off your sandals. He was in the presence of God and we're about ready to do that. So when I'm coming up to that door, if it's not closed, if it's closed, then I can open it. My mind's thinking that way. Like I'm coming into holy ground. How am I switching my mindset to get ready for this? And that has to happen, not just in that moment, but really the night before, days before, we're preparing. We're reading scripture. We're praying. We're thinking about it. How's your Saturday night going if you're coming to Mass on Sunday? Do you read the readings beforehand? How are you preparing to be properly disposed? We need to think about some of those things. Some of the cool things within our architecture, too, is when you enter into the church, I don't know if you ever noticed, but at the top, there's a, there's wood, and then there's all those little windows up there. Does anyone know what that's trying to help you understand or think about? No? You should think about Noah's Ark. The architecture is intentionally that way in our church to make you think of the ark. So the church fathers talked about the church being the ark. So we get on the ark like Noah did so that we might be saved. The church saves us in that sense. That architecture is helping you think about the Old Testament, think about salvation in the church and what you're about ready to receive. So some of the other things that you can uh, 
ponder from a practical standpoint is obviously reading scripture. I, I encourage you to read the readings the night before. I mean, the readings at, at mass just go by so fast. Um, I mean, I'm taken back by them sometimes because we, it just, it goes, you know, and you're like, okay, what just happened? And then the homily and that, that's great. But if we read them beforehand, we already know what's coming. We've already thought about it a little bit. We're going to get a lot more out of those readings. And then Father will give the homily to help try tie some of those things together and exhort us uh, to live a holy life. So weekly, Saturday night in particular, I challenge you to be thinking about those things. There's other little things uh, within the Mass. For example, we do a lot of gestures and movements in the Mass, and, and we have a tendency to potentially rush through those and be sloppy with even the sign of the cross. You know, slow that thing down. Get into reverence with that. We're in God's holy presence, and, and, and this is a prayer. You know, we don't need to rush that. It's not a race. We can slow that down. Even at the Gospel reading, when, when, when Father... Um, gets ready to read that and and we and we do this glory to you O lord you know and i mean we can we could do a sight we should do a sign of the cross nice and slow on your forehead say some say a prayer something like lord may your words always be in my mind and then on your lips may your words always be on my lips and may your words always be in my heart that i might not sin against you a, a slow down prayer on on that we're about ready to hear the gospel reading and we want to receive it into us we want it to radically change our life and so that that's just something that can be done that's something i try to do at every mass when 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 that comes up you know everyone's already done i'm, I'm still i'm just starting we gotta say glory to you oh lord I, I gotta get that out of my mouth before i can start this thing you know um because i, I want to receive that i want it deep in me in my innermost being and, and there's the only way to get to that. We have to ask for it. You have to seek, ask, and knock. There's this effort. And then he, and obviously he already gave us the grace to make the effort, and then he blesses us with that. So many things, uh, when, you know, in the Sanctus and the Holy, Holy, um, all that's referencing Scripture. And I don't know if you know the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Go read it. And that might unpack the Holy, Holy when we say that. Because Isaiah realized he was in the presence of God. He saw uh, the Holy of Holies in that sense and, and said, man, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm unworthy to be in this presence. And then the angel came out and put hot uh, coal on his mouth and said, you know, you're, you're worthy, basically, by God's command and grace. These kinds of things can really uh, move us to think and live differently when it comes to understanding the Mass and the Eucharist in particular. I listed out a bunch of books um, and websites that could be helpful. And I don't know if you've um, seen some of these books, but these aren't overwhelming either. Like a book like this can really help you understand the Mass. It's called The Biblical Walk Through the Mass by Dr. Edward Shree. Something as simple as that can really unpack a lot and help you. If you're intimidated by the Bible, a book like this, you can understand the Bible by Dr. Peter Kreeft. And he just summarizes each book of the Bible in just a page or two. So it can really help, you know, little, little helps like that. So those books listed out, feel free to look any of those up. Uh, they're very good. Those websites, they're all uh, safe and legit and helpful. Hopefully something uh, stuck in some way, shape, or form to stir you to think about the Eucharist a little bit more and the relationship with Christ and be changed.
All right, Father, you're going to come pray for us again and give us any other dismissal things you might have. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, it hits differently coming from, you know, a faithful sitting there in the pews, how we see the Eucharist from that point of view. Um, CCD parents, thanks for being here. We'll dismiss you very soon to go get your kids. But uh, again, we wanted you uh, to really think about the Eucharist again, because your kids are going to be receiving that for the first time. It's going to be so special to them. You know, we go each and every week. Sometimes we forget uh, just what an incredible thing this is. And so hopefully seeing your children, you know, just their faces, the way it changes them. And, and let that be a way to, to have that constant conversion of heart. I look forward to it every year. The second graders re-inspire me to kind of slow down and do all those things again, like for the first time. We're going to try to celebrate that mass if it's, if, it's, if it's our first mass, you know, for them. So uh, let us pray. And uh, also, you know, RCA people praying for you for your first time. Then if you receive the Eucharist, this is the most precious gift that the church can give to you, the gift of Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you gave us the Eucharist as the memorial of your suffering and death. May by this sacrament of your body and blood help us to experience the salvation you won for us and the peace of the kingdom. You lift the Father and the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.